Join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to gather as your people, both physically and digitally, Lord, as we gather across the West Shore and across our nation, even at Christ Church. And we're grateful that, Lord, as we do so, you are in our midst in Christ Jesus. And we pray that as we look at this marvelous word that Isaiah penned years ago for us and for your glory, that you spoke through him to us, that you would think our thoughts now, that my words would be yours, and that you would bend our wills to follow you wholeheartedly and set our hearts on fire with love for you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, once again, my friends, welcome to Advent 2020 uh, during these difficult times. And I can find no other better time to talk about these themes in Advent that we have this year, living at the intersection of heaven and earth, because that's who we are in Christ. And, you know, it's interesting because we get this idea in our culture that you give your life to faith in Christ. You surrender it all. We sing those songs, you know, whatever we do at Bible camp or Young Life camp or whenever we receive Christ, and boom, I've punched my ticket to eternity. And I've done it. And so often, it really, that's all that there is. And yet we know that there's so much more for us in Christ. And that's what Isaiah is trying to get for us in these passages this Advent. So I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 63. Because in today's reading, it's a good description that Sybil read for us of revival. And what we find here is God comes down to us. And yes, it's figurative speech. But with God, you know, there is no up and down. But with such figurative speech, the Bible always points to an eternal reality. What, the rea- what is the reality behind Isaiah 64 verse 1? It's the felt presence of God here, right now. Isaiah says, at your presence three times in verses 1 through 3. Because when God comes down, the mountains quake. God's presence is like a fire burning through a forest. It causes water to boil. And Isaiah says, in effect, what I'm talking about is making his name known to his adversaries so that the nations tremble before him. He's talking about God's intervention. He's talking about God shaking up this world and changing his enemies into worshipers. But Isaiah isn't just talking about this. He's longing for it. I think the most important word in this whole passage is in verse 1. Oh! All right? It's the most important punctuation mark. He isn't theorizing here. He is praying with a passion that will make some of you uncomfortable. Because it made me uncomfortable this week (laughs) as I studied it. For Zion's sake, he will not keep silent until her salvation goes forth as a burning torch. He is taking no rest and is giving God no rest until 
God's people are a praise on the earth. Verse 7. He is gripped by a greater cause than himself. And there is no greater joy for God than the descent of God upon the earth. So Isaiah is teaching us how to pray, brothers and sisters. You know, we don't learn to pray by listening to one another. We learn to pray by reading the Bible. And God wants us to pray with this boldness and with this passion for the growth of his kingdom. I mean, after all, we pray that in the Lord's Prayer. Right, right um, before we pray for our provisions, which is what our daily bread's about, we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, meaning, Lord, reign in me. Reign in my family. Reign in your church. God also invites us to make our requests about everything known to him in Philippians 4, 6. God also invites him invites us to remember that it, if it matters to us, it matters to him. 1 Peter 5, 7. God invites us to tell him everything. He's listening. But the main thing God tells us to pray for is the power of his kingdom today. When we're passing around prayer requests in our little church groups, uh, is his cause and his reign the first thing that we mention? Are we praying with God's priorities? Do we understand that our own happiness is the victory of God and his reign? Are we longing for the descent of God upon us as his church? What could be greater for you, for your family? for our city, for our country. And so the structure of this text shows that Isaiah is not necessarily being logical. He's in the passion of his emotions here. And it doesn't follow a logical sequence, all right? And so it has a longing, a lamentation, a longing, a lamentation, a longing, and then an appeal. And what God wants for us is a passion like Isaiah's and a passion for God's glory to be unrestrained in our present day. And that we would experience this in new ways. And this matters. The typical American Christianity today just isn't enough to meet the challenges of our day. We need God to come down. So how are we asking him for him to come down? Well, let's learn that from Isaiah. All right. Verse 15 of chapter 63. The first thing that Isaiah asked for and that we can ask for is for God's love to come down upon us. Verse 15. Look down from heaven and see from your holy hill and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. There's a clue here in Isaiah's passage. The Hebrew words translated are held back, reappear in verse 12 of chapter 64 as restrain yourself. The same Hebrew word lies behind these two English translations. So this prayer begins with 
Isaiah agonizing over the way God is withholding his compassion from his people. And it ends with Isaiah asking for God to stop restraining his love and power from coming down upon his people. The whole prayer is for God to visit us without holding himself back at all. There he is in his holy and beautiful heavenly palace, as it were, and we're down here in our mediocrity and our mess. So what's the answer? Well, it's not more of us. We need today more of God. The only answer is more of God. And Isaiah describes God asking him to stir up your inner parts. Does God have inner parts? Not literally, but God does have deep feelings for us. This could also be translated, Oh Lord, may the turmoil of your inner being for us be exhibited among us. What God feels for us, he feels deeply. Not superficially, not sporadically, but sometimes he withholds from us the experience of his love and at other times he pours out his experiences of love. That's, that's the walk with God. God is committed to us. The work of Christ on the cross has come for us. It's finished. The Holy Spirit has come in us in Jesus. The triune God never changes, but our experience does. He is the one who changes it, and that's why we pray. There's a difference between doing church in our own power and entering into the presence of God. I want you to pray about that. God wants you to. God, he, He's teaching you to. That's a good prayer. God himself gave it to us. Isaiah isn't attacking God by his questioning here. He isn't doubting God. He's asking God, Lord, where are your passion and your power in our experience down here? Where are your zeal and your might being demonstrated here today in 2020? The love that you feel so deeply within yourself that you're holding, you're withholding from us. Please come down, O Lord. And he continues in verse 16. For you are our father. Though Abraham doesn't know us and Israel doesn't acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father and our redeemer. From of old is your name. In other words, in Isaiah's day, if you could ask Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to come and look at Israel in Isaiah's day, what would they say? Abraham would probably say, who are you? This isn't the stars that I saw in the sky reflected in your life. See what Isaiah is saying? Well, what if Luther and Calvin and Cramer appeared in our Christchurch homes today? Would they say to us, who are you? I, I wasn't burned at the stake for this. <laughs> you know? The reality is, Isaiah's day and our day and every generation needs revival. And to rediscover afresh in its own experience what Christ is worth and what it means to live flat out for him. 
So that's the first longing. But he realizes that there's a problem that hurts finding that love of God in that way. And what is it? It's our hardened heart. So he laments. Now remember, a lament is a passionate expression of grief and sorrow. Extended. We're in a time of lament in our culture. Right? So he laments our hardened hearts. Verse 17. Oh Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden your hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Well, that's a little disturbing. But let's not misunderstand. Isaiah is not blaming God for the failure of this generation. He isn't saying that God forced them to sin and rebel. They've wandered from God's way. They do not fear God and they're responsible for it. But Isaiah digs deeper and he sees the discipline of God at work in the nation. You see, from when we, when we wander from God, he doesn't wring his hands and say, oh my goodness, what am I going to do next? If we wander from his ways, God may teach us a lesson by handing us over to the power of our sins and hardening us so that we're unable to come back to him, is what Isaiah is saying. We tell ourselves we're going to fool around with our favorite secret sin And then when we feel like it, just drop it and return back to God and it's no big deal. Where in the world did we learn that? Does the Bible teach us to trivialize God? Sin is a power beyond our control, John 8, 34, says our Lord Jesus. When we find our hearts hardened with lethargy and self-pity and even blaming God himself, so that we don't even want to return to him, what then? We pray then that God will have us back and that God will return to us. You see? He says, return for the sake of your servants. For Isaiah recognizes that they and we are totally dependent upon God. When we have wandered from his ways and no longer fear him, and our hope is not in ourselves at all. Our hope is that in his mercy, he will return to us. That's a lament for the love of God. So he goes to a second longing. It, not only are we longing for the love of God, we long for the presence of God. Verse 1 and two, 2. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. In other words, Lord, we need a divine event, an unusual event. We're thankful for the steady blessings day by day. But these are desperate times and we're in a pathetic way. We need more blessing than we've ever seen before. We need the unmistakable intervention of God. You've been on a worship service when you became aware, you walked into it and then someone's in the room. And that you had business to do with God. God is able to come down and visit us in unusual power. We know this from verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. 
The church has seen it. Jonathan Edwards, 1735, described it in New England where he was pastoring. He said, the town seemed to be full of the presence of God. It was never so full of love nor of joy and yet so full of distress as it was then. There were remarkable tokens of God's presence in almost every house. It was a time of joy and families on account of salvation being brought unto them. Parents rejoicing over their children as newborn. And husbands over their wives. And wives over their husbands. Our public assemblies were then beautiful. The assembly in general was from time to time in tears while the word was preached. Some weeping with sorrow and distress. Others weeping with joy and love. Others with pity and concern for the souls of our neighbors. <laughs> and God is still coming down today. Did you know that in 1950 in China, there was only a million Christians? Today, there's over 100 million in a land that forbids it at times, governmentally, under fierce persecution. But God is coming down and there's nothing any human government can do to stop it. He's making the mountains of human opposition quake at his presence. And through the gospel, he's turning enemies into worshipers. That's important for us to know today. Because what we view as American Christianity, quite frankly, is subnormal. Oh, there's churches here and there that are growing and making an impact. But as a whole, American Christianity is drifting into historic insignificance. And we're okay with that. We feel little urgency and longing. We're hardly aware of our own mediocrity. And we've lost the vision of the prophets and the apostles. We've forgotten that to whom much is given, much is required. So what do we do? Brothers and sisters, we must choose to accept the inconvenient, the disturbing, question-provoking, ego-humbling, prayer-stimulating, church-changing, prophetic burden that the glory of God would come down upon us today. Embrace it. Live with it. Pray for it. And let us go to our graves with that passion in our hearts. And as we do so, let us, like verse 3, stay open to whatever God wants to do among us. When you did awesome things, verse 3, that we did not look for, you came down the mountains and the mountains quaked at your presence. So what does God's work in the past teach us? How predictable he is? I don't think so. You know, he never acts out of character and he never contradicts his word, but he's never at a loss for new ways to break in and move among his people. The Red Sea, they're trapped. He parts the sea. They cross over. The whole army of Egypt is destroyed. They weren't expecting that. All right? The whole world was stumbling in darkness with no way forward. And a savior was sent and laid in a feeding trough. Nobody expected that. 
We were condemned in our inexcusable guilt without any defense. So what happened? Our judge accepted our penalty upon the cross for us. Nobody expected that. And he died and he was buried as we just stated in the creed. All the hopeful expectations that he created were gone. So what happened? He rose from the grave and ascended to the Father. And began pouring out his spirit, his spirit to make his murderers his friends. Nobody expected that. And he's still full of surprises. The American church of the 50s and 60s was stuck in a prophetic rut. Lacking a prophetic voice. And our nation was tearing itself apart, just as it's tearing itself apart today. Unexpectedly came a bunch of long-haired, hippie-type people who came to faith in Jesus and started living passionately for him. And non-denominationalism busted out across our land. They came in thousands, incomparable conversions. And I think it's time for us to pray again. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down and do awesome things that we're not looking for us. We're not looking for. Surprise us again, oh Lord. Verse 4, from of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You see, unlike our idols, God acts. No one has ever trusted God in vain. We may ask for the wrong things, but we can never get ahead of God with true thoughts of his greatness and true longings for his power to reign in our lives. We'll never make such a vision so large that he can't make a larger vision still for us. We'll never ask him to do his revealed will and hear him reply, well, I'll try. Ephesians 3, he is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. So this Advent, let's stretch our vision of God all the way out to the full extent of the Bible and then expect God to be true to himself and to his word. Jesus said, according to your faith, let it be done for you. So in verse 5 of 64, you meet him with joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Reminding us that God does not meet the intelligent ones, the brilliant ones, the put together ones, but the one who is humbly walking with God, slogging through life day by day in obedience. That's where God can be found, not with a guru on a mountaintop, but right where you are, if you're willing. You don't need to run from your life. It's where God wants to meet you. You don't need to wait for ideal conditions. You just need to use the life God's given you to remember God and his ways. So, are God's ways your ways? Is he the center of your lifestyle? For every one of us, that's an adjustment worth making this Advent. And so Isaiah recognizes another lament that prohibits that. What is it? 
our long-standing sins. He says, behold, you were angry and we sinned and our sins we've been for a long time. And shall we be saved? We've all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind. Take us away. There's no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you've hidden your face from us and you've made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. See, day by day as we live our lives and move into the future, we're not writing our lives on a blank page. Our lives are like a script The page of our hearts already crowded with stains and things that are crossed out, misspellings and tons of incomplete sentences. We're complicated. And Isaiah uses four likes to describe us here in more realistic self-awareness. So what do we like in lamenting here? First, we're like an unclean leper. I could walk around our community and warn everybody, Hi, I'm Gene Sherman, and I'm contagious with the leprosy of sin, and there's no mask that's going to help you. You better keep your distance. Okay? That's who each and every one of us are. Because I might mess up your life. We could all say that. Secondly, we're like a stain that won't come out. Even at our best moments, when we look good, We're never as good as we look. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. It's not just our sins that stink. It's our righteousness that stinks too. Third, our vitality fades away like a brittle autumn leaf that gets sucked up by the burrow. We're easily depleted. We just don't last. And fourthly, our iniquities, like the wind, take control of us and move us in directions that God doesn't want us to go. We were never meant to go. And we're not very good at taking hold of the only one who can save us. You and I do not need to be delivered from our enemies. Primarily, we need to be delivered from ourselves. So look at the very one who we've offended as all of our hope. So he then takes us from that last lamentation, taking us away from the presence of God with a new longing for a touch from God. Verse 8 and 9, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We're all at the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord. And remember, not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. This way of praying glorifies God, my friends, because it expresses our radical need for him. We're clay. He's the potter. We need his touch to redesign us, reshape us to who he wants us to be. God has all the power over us like a potter has over the clay. Does that discourage your prayer? Is his sovereignty, that potter-clay relationship, a dissentive for prayer? No, friends, we can pray with confidence for this very reason that we are the clay and he is the potter. He's able to touch us again. We need it again. And God has many methods in which to touch us. He might use discipline. He might might use comfort. 
Isaiah is not asking that God wouldn't discipline us, but that God would discipline us to the extent we, not to the extent we deserve. Because by God's own choice, we're his people and that we're under his hand. So he makes a final Advent appeal. Listen to this. This is great for Advent 2020. Verse 10 through 12. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praise you has been burned by fire. And all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Because the Jews came back from Babylon and Jerusalem was in utter ruins. It was awful. The temple was burned down. Everything was a wreck. And that mattered because Jerusalem was in that time represented the government of God on earth. And they came back to this depressing scene with memories of how great it was back in the day. So they appealed to God. Look at this mess, Lord. Lord, look what we've been reduced to. Look at how your cause has suffered. It's our fault, Lord. Your name is upon us. We deserve nothing. So we turn to you. Can you ignore us, Lord? You put so much into us. You put so much of yourself into us. Will you restrain yourself from these things, O Lord? The greatest prayer that we can make this Advent, may I suggest, is that we can pray to God that he would do his will for his glory, in his way, by his gospel, in our generation, without restraint. Friends, that's a prayer God loves to hear. And he's ready to answer. We pray for revival all the time. I can only think that the only reason he's not doing it is because not enough Christians around our nation are, are praying for it. He's the one who gave us this prayer in the first place. And he's the one who creates newness out of ashes, out of ruins. When we bow low before him this Advent and pray, Lord, as far as I'm concerned, don't restrain yourself at all. Have your way with me, with us all, freely and entirely. Just let us be part of your movement today at the intersection of heaven and earth. Amen.